out there, but the cost of care is still a very viable discussion point because liquid capital money is not what it was during the pandemic. And it and won't be what it was in 10 years either. That is correct. And and that's what inflation does to your money. Correct. But if if the veterinary inflation rates are so much higher than the the consumer price index inflation rates, it tends to make it feel harder. So that or hurt make, makes it hurt more. And and that's I think what we're, we're <laughs> coming up against from that standpoint is the pet owner who who didn't expect the cost of care when they adopted their pet during the pandemic to be what it what it is because I don't think most pet owners know what the cost of care is all about. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast that never ends. Courageous Conversations. I'm Dr. Peter Weinstein, and I'm thrilled to see friend and colleague wearing his Hawaiian shirt today, Dr. Phil Nelson. It, it's either a Hawaiian shirt or it looks like it's got marijuana on it. I can't tell, but uh, hey, Phil. Wow. Hey, Peter. You know, uh, to our listeners here, I just want you to understand that this shirt is not Hawaiian. When I look at it, I see, I think more of plantation c- colors, but but then that may have to do with the differences in our upbringing. But uh, <laughs> good to see you, Peter, and good to be back. Uh, I want to uh, uh, give a special shout out to our producer, and she's told us to be sure to wish all of our listeners a happy 2024. We hope this is better than the pundits think it's going to be for you. And we want to thank you for supporting us. And we want to thank Nationwide for supporting us in 2023 and 2024 for their belief in our messaging and that that courageous conversations are an important part of of life, of of life is for people. And and of course, those of you who are in the veterinary profession within the veterinary profession. And so we thought we would take a minute to polish up our crystal balls and try to project what 2024 might look like in the veterinary field. And and of course, anything we say today will not be held against us down the road when we're completely wrong or completely right. We will take full credit of any predictions that we are right upon and any ones that we're wrong upon, fake news. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the cold comes in because when we're wrong, we hope she cuts it out before you get a chance to hear it. But the <laughs> message that that we're sending actually aren't our opinions. The message is we need to hear yours or others need to hear yours. And we're simply providing format so that we can bring others in to express their opinion because we love to challenge them anyway. And we also hope that by listening in, you might hear other opinions and challenge them to your friends and your colleagues, and hopefully as a group, we'll come to an understanding about the issues that affect our profession and our society. 
So the the topic that still seems to be top of mind, and, and it, by the way, it's not a veterinary specific topic, but I just saw a report yesterday that just showed how low unemployment is. And, and I think it said it's the lowest it's been for this extended period of time since the Vietnam War. Well, when unemployment is low and you're an employer, you have difficulty finding employees. And when you're looking at a niche market such as veterinary medicine, the ability to fill workforce issues uh, at all levels from animal caretakers to veterinarians can be quite challenging. And we saw how COVID impacted the workforce and, and as people were busy trying to find people, trying to retain people. But um, the, the workforce issues do seem to be a, a constant uh, top of mind discussion point, whether you're a private independent practice, whether you're a corporate practice, or whether you're a leader in, in other realms. And so Phil, as an, as an educator, um, you are the first, at least on the veterinary side, you are the first cut when it comes down to uh, providing additional veterinarians. And what, what I mean by that is, is you, the, the veterinary schools choose the students and then nurture the students until they graduate. So eventually the, the veterinary schools truly define the population, the, the largest part of the population of uh, graduating veterinarians that, that will be looking for jobs. Correct me if I'm wrong on that conversation. Well, it's kind of hard to correct you on this one because you're correct. But you're correct in a very narrow perspective of the role of higher ed in veterinary medicine in that 35 schools are not a lot of schools to produce the workload in veterinary medicine that we're talking about. Again, those 35 veterinary schools do not necessarily produce veterinary technicians or veterinary receptionists or any of the other uh, rank and file workers that work in veterinary clinics. They simply produce the veterinarians. And as we produce those veterinarians, we select among the population that choose to apply. We've been fortunate that that pool has, except for maybe the mid-90s, that pool has been relatively bright in terms of numbers. The schools, however, do have an impact on who they select and the criteria that they select for, and the, as well as the skills that they may graduate with. And I think that higher ed and veterinary medicine does a pretty good job, of course I would since I'm in that area, does a pretty good job in trying to ascertain just what skills are needed on day one of graduation, after graduation. And, and I do know that that's a focus of all the schools in trying to meet those goals so that the graduates are as productive as they can be. But Having said that, you inferred in your introduction that employers are having challenges right now because of the lowest unemployment rate that we've had for a contracted period of time. And honestly, I find it ironic when a positive statistic like that is draped with a negative shawl, so to speak. 
in that we want everybody who wants to work to be working. But that does put pressure on the culture of your work when it comes to competitiveness for labor. It's a positive negative. It's a positive from an economic standpoint, but it's a negative from a workforce standpoint because there's fewer people in the pool from which to choose. And, And the people are much more selective from that standpoint as well. So we have a, a workforce issue at the veterinary level that the that has been debated as to the significance of it. And, and there's a discussion, a very vibrant discussion on both ends of the spectrum. We have a uh, concurrent workforce issue with the number of credentialed technicians that are available. We have a smaller pool of applicants looking for positions as client service people, animal caretakers, et cetera, even managers. And so it's it's as business is busy, you need people. When business slows down, you have to figure out how to maintain people. And there's a there's there's two sides to every equation. One is input, the other is output. Input is the number of people. But you, the output is those people leaving the profession, also talking about from a retention standpoint. So we need to focus on both sides. We need to have a production side and we need to have a retention side so that the funnel doesn't empty faster than, than it's being filled. I just want to, to make sure you know you had a three-minute say right there. But this is your area. and right. I still don't think you said enough because I could see you trying to to cover all the bases while you're talking, right? And the difficulty here, I'm going to complicate it even more. It's, you know, capitalism is messy. And and whether unemployment is 4% or 7%, it always challenges the employer, right? You know, even when labor is, when the, when there's a surplus of labor because unemployment is high, you can get people cheaply, but you may not get quality people cheaply. And if you do make that sacrifice, then your business may suffer. But I think that we are, that this is not just a function of education production. I, I understand the role of veterinary schools and vet tech schools being the gatekeepers, but it is not just a the role of the professional trainers or educators. It is also a role of the complexity, the the the, com- the complex growth that has occurred in veterinary businesses. We have moved to a business model that now recognizes a practice manager, for instance, who is not necessarily a veterinarian. And yet we're seeking these individuals at a time when the labor shortage is affecting all professions. And uh, practice managers in veterinary medicine is a relatively unique niche in the business community. And we don't have a lot of people prepared for that either. And I also think there are some social pressures that are being placed on the veterinary profession that we either are reticent to talk about or just don't know how to insert it into the discussion. So I'm going to be brave enough and courageous enough to say it. Those people who are about to retire belong to one generation and are predominantly male. They're being replaced by new graduates who are predominantly female. Those people who are about to retire, who are predominantly male, 
are leaving practices that were either solo or two-person two practices that the individuals for the majority of their history worked 70 to eight, 60 to 80 hours a week. Whereas the work ethic of our new graduates doesn't come close to trying to replace those hours for different reasons, i.e. family, et cetera, which also is related to the gender shift that we're seeing. Those things also create the gap in fulfilling the need for veterinarians. Well, I'm glad just everybody who was listening, that was Dr. Phil Nelson <laughs> saying that because I don't want to blame anybody or anything for the issues, except I would suggest what COVID actually did is it, it, it brought out the inefficiencies in the way we go about doing things. And, and that's at all different levels in, in, in terms of the delivery of veterinary care. And so part of the inefficiencies are utilization of people. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes it takes two people to fill one full-time equivalent position because of the differences in generational changes that are going on. Sometimes it takes one person who works harder than others to be equivalent to two people. So we've got all of these moving parts that derive how a practice delivers. And there's been enough studies, IDEX did a study, AVMA has done studies um, about the inefficiencies within the practice. And we know that by increasing efficiencies, we could actually slow down some of the workforce needs if the output is better from the people that are delivering it and the practices that are delivering it from that standpoint. So this is a very complex economic and socioeconomic discussion that we have to be aware of. And as we're having this discussion, there are discussions about addressing some of the workforce uh, changes or needs with additional uh, seats at veterinary schools and additional uh, schools adding a second term or, or classes going on concurrently with other classes. And also there are major discussions on adding a number of new veterinary schools that will help fill the funnel of veterinarians looking or going to veterinary school and ultimately graduating that may address some of the perceived shortfall in the veterinary profession as well. So there are efforts to address some of the changes that might occur as a result of a generation. I mean, probably 30% of the hospital owners right now are baby boomers and older, and well, probably not much older than baby boomers, speaking from personal experience. But we've got some efforts that are being made to address the workforce needs on the veterinary side. The really difficult part comes on how do we address the workforce needs on the non-veterinary side? How do we find those people that fit the needs of our truly unique business models? And I don't care if you're equine, food animal, swine, research, veterinary medicine is really kind of a unique profession, isn't it, Phil? It is. And I, you know, as a segue, I, I have a hard time calling people with uh, as much gray hair as you have in your head, baby boomers. But, you know, th I guess baby boomers are. Uh, that's what that's what exactly where they are right now. Thanks, Dad. Uh, huh? Thanks, Dad. 
You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing that I wanted to add, however, in adding to the complexity of this of these issues, and I want to make sure that I that 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 I'm heard clearly. First, I'm not suggesting that the gender shift alone is is the major co uh, contributing factor to the gap in the replacement of of FTE. It, it is, as Dr. Weinstein said, it is more of a generational shift than it is the gender shift, although they both contribute both ways. But the entire younger generation, X, Y, y and Zers, have different viewpoints on how they're going to support their family. I had a interview with a, with one one of the senior students that that graduated last year while we were going through some interview tactics and asked, what are you looking for in your career? And the first thing he, he was an older student who had three children. And the first thing he said was, I want to have time with my family. That's a male saying this. And for baby boomers, we understand that the shift in the shift that even allowed a male to voice that desire has been dramatic over time. That would have been rare for baby boomer males to have, have voiced it, even if they had it. It was expected that they sacrifice the time for their family, and everybody understood that. So with that shift comes a, comes a real consequence of contract negotiations and how much our new graduates actually want to spend at work away from their family as as opposed to how much they need to make in order to support that family even though they're working less but the one thing we haven't mentioned is also the real increase in demand for veterinary services over time we've talked about a lot of things to uh in in, in the last 20 minutes but we haven't identified that there has been real gain in veterinary services. And I can only see that as a positive, but it is creating additional pressures on the on employers to meet those demands while maintaining concern for uh, mental wellness and family issues and the culture of their practice so that they can retain people. That is why it becomes such a complex issue. And you can't just focus on educating more, even though I understand that there are inefficiencies that are being addressed. I defy anybody to show me a formula where they can uh, 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 eliminate this gap through efficiency. Yeah, it, it's multifactorial and you can't, you need to do, you need people and efficiency to shrink the gap from that standpoint. And and it, it is the, the demand for veterinary services has been interesting. We thought that we were recession proof and, and we pretty much are, but we're, we're probably recession resistant because 2008 to 2012 did have an impact. It just didn't shut everybody down. And so that that was a good thing on on one hand. I call, on I call hand, that recession proof, especially when it was the greatest recession since the depression. Uh, well, yes, but we did have some attritions. Of course. So, yeah. So the interesting thing, though, is the last two years, maybe a year and a half, 
the demand for veterinary services based upon the number of companion animal visits has actually been declining. And so when talking to veterinary hospital owners, as I do, many practices feel as if they are where they would have been if business had been the norm, three to 5% growth from 2019 to the present, taking the pandemic out of the equation. So there was this tremendous demand during the 20, pretty much from June 2020 through maybe the middle of 2022, beginning of 2022. But for about two years, there was an, an amazing demand for veterinary services that pushed practices way beyond their ability to deliver. And it led to increases in salaries to help retain doctors or to even to hire doctors. It associated with uh, increases in fees uh, to help uh, cover the overhead costs because when you increase salaries, you increase fees to help cover your overhead costs and maintain some of your margins. So it's really been interesting to, to talk to practices now who say, it's slowing down. I'm feeling it. I don't have the cash flow. I'm not seeing as many clients. And so we're we're starting to now deal with some other feelings and this this feeling of uncertainty that COVID brought us for one reason is now being felt with a level of uncertainty during to due to some of the other changes in terms of demand. And also, one more variable is we're starting to get more pushback from clients on the cost of veterinary care because in looking at data the veterinary inflation rate is higher than the pet product inflation rate, which is higher than the national inflation rate. And so we have seen inflated veterinary costs to clients that have made it untenable for some when it comes down to the cost of veterinary care. So this is why I, I'd like to suggest that we're at a very interesting inflection point between all of these different variables that are going on, workforce, cost of care, inflationary, we're not in a recessionary state, but, and, and also new technologies coming on board. It, it's just a really interesting period of time. So if you wanted to sit in a rut and hope this wasn't gonna hit you, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen in the veterinary field, and, and even those who are not in the veterinary field, there's a lot of disruption going on in the veterinary profession right now. Yeah, well, I don't think the disruption is new. I think the feeling of discomfort or uncertainty is maybe new and maybe unusual, or the data that you just produced covered a five, a four-year period. My statements were, was based on, on a three-decade period. And I think that is part of our problem in that we make these knee-jerk reactions to short-term changes as if they're going to last. You suggested that in the response that we made to the sudden increase in demand during the pandemic when people were at home a lot and decided they needed, for some reason, even more responsibility at home and ended up getting more and more pets and they emptied the shelters. But if you remember shortly, as the vaccines came out and as we became a more resistant population, there was also 
a sense that there was going to be a workers' revolt and that nobody was going to go back into the the hospital. That would have devastated the veterinary profession if our techs had not come back, you know, had not come back to the hospitals and tried to work remotely as we were doing, which was killing us, by the way, the way we had to do it. So there, so we had a unique response to it. I think nobody wanted to say anything. Everybody saw some of the benefits of being able to work from home. But what we had to do in in clinics to deliver services was as stressful and distressful on, on us that uh, I think we all enjoyed the opportunity to get back to some sense of norm. But I was referring to the total demand, increase in demand for services over the last 30 years, not just during the pandemic. And it's and and it's easy to look at. And so, of course, and I'm not suggesting that we overreacted by offering more dollars to keep our people during uh, a period of increased demand. I had a hospital to manage and had the same challenge. You know, uh, we did what we thought we had to do. But now that people are returning dogs back to the shelters and shelters are once again burgeoning at seams because they're not they're no longer they're having problems adopting them we're going to have to adjust again uh you know and so uh uh, uh the one thing that you said that i i'm in total agreement with is is that there's a lot of disruption going along going on that we're going to have to be careful how we navigate so let's just briefly touch on the inflationary veterinary fees and the cost of care because i mean neither you nor i own a veterinary hospital so when i bring my dog in and you or nicole bring her dogs in we're paying veterinary service care now we can afford it because of our position in life but we're seeing more and more people challenged by the gold standard, the optimal care. And we as a profession need to start to think about a variety of options for care. And, and this is a multi-part question because part of education is teaching how to provide a variety of standards of care. And so can you envision increased instituting in the curriculum talking about multiple op treatment options for parvo, cruciates, et cetera, so that new graduates are coming out and understanding that pet owners have different needs and different demands? So this is a pet peeve of mine when people assume they know what's being taught in veterinary schools. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. Yeah, well, no, you're not, because it's understandable. If you didn't learn it, or if you can't remember having had the discussion or uh, the approach that you're suggesting, then you assume that the schools haven't changed. And if you don't go back, you won't know. 
you know, and you just assume that education is static. And 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 I would be in the same field of ignorance as well if I was not in education. But uh, believe it or not, the faculty and the dean and administration do keep up with the issues of the day that occurs in veterinary medicine. Now, believe it or not, they don't move as fast as the issues change, you know, and sometimes, which I think is, is uh, prudent, you know, otherwise it would affect the quality of the curriculum. But it is my sense, and we should probably bring um, another dean in as a guest to talk about this as well, uh, or two. But it is my sense that the, uh, the academic, the veterinary academic profession has been addressing what some allude to as spectrum of care for quite a while. Now, I can't say this, but it may be because of the uniqueness of the college that I graduated from. Spectrum of care was a basic tenet for, uh, uh, of the curriculum at Tuskegee. And that was back in the 70s. 1870. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then add one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or a hundred. But it may have been because we primarily serve a minority community. And we had to provide spectrum of care. First of all, I don't believe that we committed as much of a sin as we talk about. I do believe that our specialists in our institutions gave the effect that if you're not plating fractures, you're doing it wrong. And I do believe that we had that as a result, one of the unintended consequences was we may have had some graduates who drank the Kool-Aid and were afraid of doing it any other way. But I also believe that we didn't know how to control the regulatory effect of uh, managing uh, quality of medicine in a community through veterinary medical boards. And I believe that there was an insidious creep toward gold standard regulations that had an unintended consequence on uh, liability and potential uh, litigation. And somehow it got translated to we're teaching the wrong thing in vet schools. This is much too complex a problem because I also don't think that the veterinary medical boards intended with this result to, to achieve this result either. Well, it, and, and it, by the way, if you bring the deans on, let's bring on some recent graduates and some veterinary students too, and just see how their, what their perceptions are as well. Well, because... you know, by the way, we could have talked about this offline and you, we would have done that with, with both of us since we both make the decisions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We could have done that. Next time we'll do that. But again, it's another multifactorial discussion yes. of, of what impacts, because there are many of us, because of the human-animal bond, that practice defensive veterinary medicine. 
And defensive veterinary medicine tends to err on the side of quote unquote gold standard because of the fear of ramifications if you do not provide that gold standard. And what my and, and I don't know anyone who has done a study that shows what we just postulated. I don't you know mean, anyone that shows that litigation has increased in any community because of the enforcement of gold standard regulations. Well, we can bring on an attorney for that one too. Yeah, <laughs> well, an attorney would would still give you their impression. Not we would we still wouldn't know. Correct, but you know, if their caseload has increased based upon the type of the cases that, of the veterinarians that are being litigated against, we could get some ideas of whether, anyhow, they, they would be they would be able to represent. Actually, the ABMA PLIT probably could address. They might, it. Well, that, that would now that's that's where we should go to to ask that question, because it's not about whether or not there's an increase in litigation; it's about whether or not. The, there's an increase in the litigation of the quality of service, the, excuse me, the expected gold standard of services that were supposed to be delivered as the challenge. Well, and, and again, it's, it's the person who interprets the case, depending upon how the state operates their state board, will ultimately determine whether that case is a malpractice case or whether it gets escalated or not. So it, it's, a, again, lots of different discussions out there, but the cost of care is still a very viable discussion point because liquid capital money is not what it was during the pandemic. And it and won't be what it was in 10 years either. That is correct. And and that's what inflation does to your money. Correct. But if if the veterinary inflation rates are so much higher than the the consumer price index inflation rates, it tends to make it feel harder, so that or hurt make, makes it hurt more, and and that's I think what we're, we're <laughs> coming up against from that standpoint is the pet owner who who didn't expect the cost of care when they adopted their pet during the pandemic to be what it what it is because I don't think most pet owners know what the cost of care is all about. Well, as long as we understand that the inflationary rates of the uh of, of veterinary services and i'm just i uh i i i'm using that I, I i hope i don't use that term again because i don't want to weaponize the term uh, uh other than but I, ho I also hope we understand that those inflationary rates veterinary inflation rates are partially due to that two decade period when we were in a, when the veterinary profession was in a stagnant, almost deflationary position, and now we're having to catch up, and uh, uh, because salaries have changed dramatically, and I and I'm not talking about inflationary, excuse me, excessive salaries. Even if you took that out, there is still a significant a significant change in a living wage for veterinarians between the 1970s and now on a national basis. I'm, I'm glad for that. But the interesting thing is that the 
increase in, in salaries over the last two years have jumped about 10% per year for new graduates. And it's still corrected for inflation below what it was 20 years ago. Huh? Correct. The, the increase in salaries for new graduates is still below when corrected for inflation. Were corrected for the value of the dollar below what the salaries were. Oh, years. yeah, but you can't correct for the value of the dollar. Everybody's paying the same for inflation. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, I mean you can't do, you can't compare what a dollar could buy then versus what a dollar can buy now uh, when everybody is in the same boat right now. Uh, again, unless you're trying to say that we still haven't caught up. I'm saying we still haven't caught up. Okay. And all you, which doesn't help your argument about the inflationary, not argument, you're not arguing. It, it doesn't help our situation about inflationary costs to the consumer. Right? Except, yeah. The, the inflationary costs to the consumer have gone up more rapidly over the last three or four years than they had in the prior 20. Right. And I'm, and, and I'm just saying that it's not necessarily because we're overcharging for the services. No, I'm not for, saying that either. Or, or for the product that the salaries we are paying ourselves and our colleagues is part of that, is a significant part of that. And it's because we're having, in order to keep our labor force, we're having to move faster than, we, than we'd like. Or more, or, or be more aggressive than we would like, because we had this period of timidity for twenty years, where salaries barely changed. Interesting. So, the we're not the, the salaries have escalated where they should be and have been over the last few years because of a need for people. It's the supply and demand issue. So it, it, during a time when there is a shortage of people, salaries go up, right? Mm -hmm. So during the last few years, as there was a shortage of people and, and veterinarians were leaving practice and doctors were looking for different work schedules, salaries were escalated to ensure that there were people to be able to deliver veterinary care partially so what's the other part well salaries went up because uh we shifted the cost of education more of the cost of education was shifted to the student during that same period of time Okay, and now I'm talking the last four years, not the last twenty. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't. And 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 you should because you're in the work. You're out there on the road. I right. understand, I, and I'm not criticizing you for that. All right. I'm just saying that I tend to look at long term effects and long term right. factors, right? But even on the short term, um. Uh, student debt is still an issue. Absolutely. Right? It's not as much of an issue as it was 
uh, a decade ago. Correct. And that's because salaries have gone up. Correct. Right. It's also because we found other ways to replace the cost to the student. And it's, pri and it's primarily through the private industries that support the profession. Maybe we need to bring some of those representatives in to talk about their contribution to the profession, particularly in supporting the cost of education. So the debt to income ratio has improved over the last couple of years because the jump in salary was, high, was higher than the jump in debt. It's not right. to say the debt's going down. It's just the debt to income ratio has um, gone down, which is where it needs. To, it's closer to where it needs to be. It's still a pretty untenable situation. The other thing that's been interesting, and again, this is probably a sidebar, is the fact that the number of students who graduate from veterinary school with no debt has gone up. Mm -hmm. And so that that tends to adjust the, the total debt picture from that standpoint. But all of these things are part of, again, this very dynamic world in terms of the veterinary business model and, and the education model and, and all of the different things that are going on at the same time in a profession that loathes change. Well, yeah, maybe. So what? I mean, change is going to come. Just because you loathe it doesn't mean you can change, you, you can change the change. No, but what it does is it adds to the discussion point from earlier in terms of discomfort. Mm. So it, when when you are comfortable with the status quo and one molecule goes out of whack, all of a sudden you don't spin the same way. But we aren't comfortable with the status quo. Who is we? Good question. I've still, I'm talking about the same profession you're talking about. You okay. started this whole discussion by saying that the people you're talking to are uncomfortable. Correct. And they they and who we, so who is we? Who are you talking to? I am talking to practicing veterinarians, practicing managers. Well, then they are the we. Okay. Well, I would just you said we, and I just followed up with we we all the way home. The we is the boots on the ground, grassroots people that My we produce we produce out of veterinary schools who are delivering veterinary care and services to the consumers. Yeah, and That's my point is, is, is that uh, I believe, I, I feel like we're going in circles here right now because this began with the veterinary profession hates change. Correct. And that they are comfortable with where they are. And I just want to remind you, you start this conversation by saying they are not comfortable where they are right now. They're not comfortable where they are right now because of the change. Okay, well, so they're going to have to change. Reluctantly. Well, Let me put way. it this way, Phil. If, if we didn't have a pandemic. Oh, my God. If we didn't have a pandemic, do you think anybody would have been doing curbside? Of course not. That's the biggest change to hit veterinary medicine since James Harriet. Yeah, I've got And what's your point about that? My point is we did it because we had to. And yes. my point is that we are changing now, not by choice, but by chance, by the fact that there's so many variables and things going on right now. But you've also said that some of the changes we have to respond to were also induced by the pandemic that's gone away. 
Correct. And but we have to look at what happened and decide what was good that occurred in the pandemic and what was disruptive during the pandemic and we should return back to normal. My bottom line feeling is we shouldn't go back. We should try to figure out where we want to go going forward. And that's at all levels. That's at the education level, it's at the private practice level, it's at the corporate practice level, and it's at the association level. I think it's a perfect time to start to make the painful changes that we need to make. Maybe our problem is, is that we're trying to return to normal. That is a problem. That's I mean, you, you use that phrase just now that maybe we should as if, you know, as if we actually have the luxury of picking what works, what we want to keep and throwing away the rest. And then we're going to call that normal. Well, we, if we pick what we want to keep, that wasn't there when it was normal. If we pick what worked better, that was good change. That was a change that we decide that we are making an affirmative decision. And I'm using that word on purpose. The affirmative decision to keep those things that we think were better, that improved our lot. That, you know, that is called this, this uh, data-based decision making. You know, and, and we're going to throw and we're going to throw away curbside management because we know what it did to our people and to our and to our um, patients and our clients. And that is called data-based decision-making. But when, but, in, but when we end up, we will not be in the pre-pandemic environment anymore. So to wrap this up, the conversation started with what does 2024 look like? And so we've gone from normal to abnormal to new normal. And part of looking at things going forward is every new normal will have a next normal. And that this is where we should be focusing is on what is the next normal? And what is the next normal after that? And there will be changes in all of the different silos that impact the veterinary profession to continue to move towards the next normal. Normal may be comfortable, but normal isn't necessarily optimal. Well, for those who adopt that position, more power to you. I'd rather not try to spend my time describing the next normal. I'd rather spend my time identifying the next better. And once I've achieved what you may call the next normal, I'll be looking at the next better. Oh, I am getting bitter with your better. So, <laughs> Phil, you got my head spinning. And so I enjoy the conversations, Peter. I learned a lot. This is your area. To our listeners, you should know that my head's hurting too, just trying to keep up with the spin and the issues that are bouncing around in this business head, trying to assimilate some cogent response, not just for himself, but for the profession. And Peter, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the the uh, service you provide to profession in at least uh, challenging us to look at it from a different paradigm. Well, I appreciate that. And for those of you who can't see Phil right now, which is all of you, if you remember the TV show Kojak, I think 
Kojak always walked around with a Tootsie Pop in his mouth. Who loves you, baby? Who loves you, baby? Well, love you, Phil. Love you, Peter. And we love all the people who are listening to us. I hope you got a better idea of some of the economics of the profession. And we're going to continue to have this because I love getting a word in edgewise every once in a while with Phil. And when I have a topic that I can do so, like economics, I'm going to drive. I'm going to drive that car. So thank you, Phil. Thanks for uh, thanks for bearing with me. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you, Nicole, and especially thank you to Nationwide. So it's a fun way to kind of kick off some of the the situation in 2024 and we'll come back at the end of the year and we'll see how close we weren't to coming close to any idea of where the next normal or the optimal normal will be happy new year and look for the better oh thank you for joining us for another courageous conversation be sure to follow us and check back next week for more 